Welcome to Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with both of my co-hosts today, Alex Lawson. Hello, Amber. And Haley Knopf. Hey, Amber. Hey, Alex. Nice to have the gang all together today. Yeah, I um, I said this before we had the production meeting yesterday. You know, we all took a respite last week. We had a special episode talking about We Own This City. I hope everybody enjoyed that. And it was nice to have time off like it always is. But I said as much. I, I missed Pro Se, and I'm excited to be back. Well, you couldn't have come back to a, a better time about big breaking legal news a little later, we're going to hear a conversation that I had with Carolina Bellotto, who's our Florida reporter, all about the Trump Mar-a-Lago search by the FBI and what's gone on in court. So that's all over the news. I think our listeners are probably like, wait, why are you talking about that exactly? I know everything. But it's so confusing because so much of that is a political story. And we really want to cut through it and just sort of go through like what's actually happened in court since that search happened. Yeah, it's a it's a quickly evolving story. Carolina's done like an amazing job on it. And I think you guys are going to be able to untangle a lot of the the legal tentacles that are wrapping around it right now. I also want to bring up one other thing about a big news item. Obviously, the war in Ukraine has passed the six month mark, um, continues on. And there's an interesting thing that our parent company, Lexis, has done. They've partnered with the Ukrainian National Bar Association to launch this cool legal aid portal that's designed to support Ukrainian lawyers and nationals. So it's kind of this way to connect, you know, firms that maybe want to hire some Ukrainian lawyers or look um, to pair them up with their own legal assistance. And I just wanted to let people know that that exists. going to give you a website address now. It's ukr-rol.lexisnexus.com. If you're at all interested in checking that out to either point someone in the direction to get some help or to volunteer yourself. Pretty cool. A rare, uh, a rare plug for our parent company, but got to <laughs> throw it in there every now and again. Um, but first, I know, Alex, you have some updates for us on a, a COVID vaccine litigation drama, if you will. Yeah, I mean, it's actually like the first sort of big COVID-19 vaccine litigation development that that, that we want to talk about. So... The thing to know, I mean, I think most people know this, but the COVID-19 vaccines, which were um, developed by several companies, were some of the most groundbreaking medicines of the modern age, especially when you consider how quickly they came to market, given how everybody was sort of awaiting their release. The thing we're talking about today are the mRNA vaccines, which use artificial genetic material that build proteins that, that ward off this virus, basically. They they create artificial proteins within your body to ward off the virus. Um, and the drug makers that were driving a lot of that innovation over a year ago had basically vowed to just hold off on litigating against each other. And obviously, pharma companies sue each other all the time. So it was pretty remarkable that they would say, we're not going to sue each other over intellectual property related to the COVID-19 vaccine while the pandemic is going on. But now we have seen that ceasefire begun to kind of fall away a little bit. So the company Moderna, which manufactured a COVID-19 vaccine, has sued a different company, Pfizer, and its partner BioNTech 
for infringement of its patents related to the mRNA COVID-19 vaccine, which really just kind of breaks the dam of major drug makers just kind of saying, we'll live and let live as we develop these, these very important remedies. And now, as the gloves are sort of fully off here with this litigation starting, I thought it would just be good to like walk through the various legal issues and like how this is going to look as it moves through federal court and what is at stake. I do also want to say that if you want to know more about the development of the COVID-19 vaccines and the patent issues that underlie them, we talked with Danny Cass, who inform- whose reporting informed a lot of the content we'll talk about today. Uh, we talked with her on episode 179 about like kind of the early days of like the COVID-19 vaccine patent wilderness. That's episode 179 if you want to hear more about that. But now it's spilled into the courtroom, which gives us a lot more to talk about. Well, you know, I love a patent story, so I am excited to dig into this. But, you know, if I recall back a while, time's a flat circle in this pandemic. But of course, in the beginning, these big companies did sort of agree, like, we're not going to sue each other because the common good here is more important than these patent cases at the time. So what happened to sort of stop that? Yeah, well, the the answer is that some time went by. That was the <laughs> issue. Um, and there's more that there, there are more issues there um, that 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 will flow that we'll talk about in a second. But Moderna is the company that filed the case. They filed it against Pfizer and, and, and another company, as I said. And Moderna very publicly declared that it would not enforce its COVID-19 vaccine patents during the pandemic. And that brings in this concept that a lot of legal industry listeners will know, other people might not, but it basically comes down to this concept known as promissory estoppel. And the idea is that if you make this public promise, this public declaration to do something or not to do something in this case, not to litigate your patent, you are to a certain extent bound by that promise, even if it's not, even if you don't write it into a contract, even if you don't sort of like put legal binding language to it, if it's generally understood, there is an obligation that you have made if you publicly state this as like a public entity. So there are a number of open questions. I mean, the the, the case has just been filed. So there are a number of open legal questions about how binding this declaration actually is. So, you know, uh, Moderna made this statement saying it wouldn't enforce its patents against any other company in October of 2020, roughly six months, you know, seven months after the pandemic took hold in the United States. This past March in 2022, it updated that statement to say that it wouldn't enforce patents only in a certain number of low-income countries in the global south. So sort of like, you know, it was like of only we, we we only won't enforce it in like the poorest countries in the world. And that sort of like tailored its initial promise. And now it's up to the court to decide to what extent that first promise not to litigate, you know, bears on the second thing and whether it's usurped by, you know, only limiting patent enforcement only to certain richer countries. Now, it's, that's a very blurry place for the law to, to wade into, 
And the patent bar is going to be looking very closely at how the court views, like, these various overlapping public declarations. Okay. Now, don't don't let me go on a tangent here, but the pandemic is not over, right? <laughs> but so the these companies are like, well, it sort of is in our minds, or... Yeah, do we take our cue from Moderna saying like, oh, it's time to sue now. So clearly should the I, pandemic Yeah, should I burn my masks? Yeah, well, this is another huge thing because they vowed, again, I, I was talking about promissory estoppel. And like the thing they said was during the duration of the pandemic, we won't enforce our patents. And then I just talked about how it will be usurped by which countries they can litigate against and all of that. But the duration of the pandemic part of that statement is hugely important, as you guys are both saying. I mean, there's, there is a big open question in a legal sense as to when the pandemic is, quote, over, such that they can enforce these patents. So there isn't a lot of consensus about the conditions that Moderna put on its promise to not litigate its patents. So they just said for the, you know, until the pandemic ends. And that was just kind of like not really formalized. But the White House National Emergency Declaration on COVID is still in effect as we sit here today. The World Health Organization, the Centers for Disease Control, they still assert that the pandemic is ongoing. And that means... Yeah. Sorry to interrupt. I want to throw it out there that it's a really good thing we're not talking about this the week that all three of us had COVID or <laughs> right. Were, I mean, recovering we would from COVID. in fact argue that at that time the <laughs> pandemic still was going on. But hey, we've had a little more space so we can be true journalists about this. Anyway, continue, Alex. That's true. Yes. So, but it's interesting. I mean, we're just kind of talking here about like when is this actually over? Like in quotes, right? Yeah, because even yeah. in the scientific community, there's a debate about are we still in a pandemic or have we reached the endemic, endemic stage where it's right. just with us forever? Yeah, it's it's really messy. Yeah. And that I mean, the very question of like, are we quote out of this could become a like a very, very, you know, ripe legal issue if the suit continues in federal court. I should say Moderna filed in Massachusetts federal court against Pfizer. And then also in a German court, which is where the uh, BioNTech's parent is. But anyway, so I should say that when the pandemic was declared, Moderna and various other pharmaceutical companies used the World Health Organization designation of a pandemic and various other national authorities to kind of guide their thinking here, especially to say, if and when we develop technology to address this virus, we won't enforce it as long as you say it's in place. So now you're in this weird push and pull where, you know, we've developed this technology. We, the company, think that this threat has mostly been mitigated. Um, Moderna's legal filings say that the COVID-19 outbreak became, as you say, Amber, endemic early in 2022. They think it's endemic and it's just kind of like something we live with now. But there is a question of whether or not, like, if you pegged your promise to what the World Health Organization and various other national governments say, shouldn't you then be bound by what they say if it's over or not? Again, we are in very early days, but those are the things people are looking at. 
Okay, so let's talk a little, maybe slightly more technically about this, where that is a big sort of existential question, like, is the pandemic over? Yeah. If they get past that hurdle in court, we are talking about, like, real cutting-edge technology. How strong are the IP claims here if they can say, like, that that promise is not binding at this point? Yeah, and I don't want to get too too deep into the patent weeds. Um, and, and again, as I said, if you want to um, listen to Danny Cass, our patent reporter, talk about it, you should listen to that episode that I mentioned earlier, 179. She wrote another story this week, basically saying that um, she cited at least one academic that said that Moderna's patents for mRNA vaccines seem to be a little broad. That was the word that that person used, um, which could potentially leave it open for litigation. The other issue here is that it looks like Moderna didn't face a lot of resistance in attaining these patents, which could cut in one of two directions. It could mean that they developed this technology that was so new and so cutting edge that it was just not even a question that this is patentable technology or just that the patent examiner was a little bit on autopilot and in the middle of the pandemic wasn't really looking to reject this technology, maybe kind of just rubber stamping a little bit. And as usually happens in a lot of like competing IP patent cases, it's already been like a free-for-all. Moderna itself, which has sued Pfizer for infringement, Moderna is facing infringement claims from a number of, of other smaller manufacturers and so a lot of people were industry observers were surprised to see Moderna pick a fight with a real heavyweight like Pfizer, which is almost certainly, I mean, Pfizer has asserted patents of its own. They will almost certainly assert counterclaims uh, for COVID-19 vaccines. And we'll have to see. But it is definitely, with the filing of this lawsuit, even if, you know, we here in the real world don't perceive the pandemic as being over, the point is that the pharmaceutical companies that develop these vaccines are ready to take the gloves off and litigate over it. Okay, I want you both to pack your bags. Come on out to California with me. We have an interesting case out here involving some really big Hollywood names. Unfortunately, though, right off the bat, I do want to say it's a it's a pretty sad case. Uh, Haley, I was so with you when you said pack your bags, come out to California. <laughs> and now you tell me it's sad. I know. I'm sorry. I, I've just been waiting for months to have a reason to tell you to pack your bags and come to California sure. with me. So we we're going to do it. We'll probably do yeah. it for the Christmas party, honestly. But fair. Yeah. OK. All right. So in we'll this go to the case, California Christmas party, not the New York Christmas. Party. Yeah, that'd be, I like <laughs> yeah. that, actually. That's great. Yeah. So in this case, the assistant of Joel Silver, he's a big name producer who worked on The Matrix, among other things. Um, the assistant drowned while they were traveling to attend Jennifer Aniston's wedding. And the assistant was drinking and doing cocaine before she went swimming. So those are the the facts, the the really sad facts underlying this case. But I want us to talk about the litigation because it centers on who exactly can be held liable in a situation like this. Um, and a California appellate court recently held that Joel Silver is not liable in this death. Yeah, this one's definitely a, a really tragic story, but it's... It does raise really interesting questions about where liability stops and starts with an assistant working for their employer. Like, when are they on the 
clock, I guess, and and how that plays in when something bad happens. Um, tell us more about the facts here. I, I know you said Jennifer Aniston's wedding, so that's a really specific place you're putting us in. It is. The assistant's name is Carmel Musgrove. Musgrove was 28 years old and drowned in a lagoon in Bora Bora in August 2015. So what had happened here is Silver had invited her to travel with him to the wedding. Um, and she was basically offered a partial vacation while also just doing a little bit of work on the side, planning everyone's daily activities. She was staying in her own bungalow and attending group meals hosted by Silver. On August 18th, Musgrove met up with Silver's uh, personal French chef. That's 47-year-old Martin Harold. According to the case, the pair drank some wine and Musgrove did some coke. Around midnight, she went back to her bungalow for a night swim. And this is where it gets really sad. She wasn't seen the next day. um, And then her body actually washed up onto the shore the following night. And two autopsies found that her death was accidental drowning and that alcohol and drug use contributed to that. Okay. So, I mean, I... That's a very specific and very sad set of facts. I would assume that her family sued. But what we're going to talk about here is how Joel Silver, famous Hollywood producer, kind of connects to this, even though he seems like a couple degrees removed. When her uh, family sued, what did they allege? What did they sue for? So Musgrove's parents, Ronald and Anne, sued in 2017. They alleged that both Silver and Harold were liable because they exposed Musgrove to an unreasonable risk of harm by giving her, you know, the purportedly excessive amount of alcohol, um, the drugs, etc. And that was all while promoting dangerous activities like swimming in a lagoon late at night by herself, um, according to the suit, of course. Specifically, they said that Silver was liable directly liable because he caused her to be in a vulnerable state the night of her death. They also said he was vicariously liable for Harold's negligence because the chef was, in their mind, acting within the scope of his employment at that time. One detail I'll add is going on this trip was not a requirement of Musgrove's job, but, you know, going meant that she was paid her salary, only expected to spend about 10% of her time coordinating with the resort staff on stuff. And the rest of her time was hers. She was allowed to hang out with everyone else. All of her expenses were paid. Um, Just wanted to mention that because it's a a little important for the the court's ultimate findings. Yeah, I can really see how this starts to get very messy about where does the working end and the you're just on a vacation begin. And in this kind of relationship where part of your job can be in Bora Bora. That gets really confusing (laughs) really fast. So you did say that Silver had been cleared in all of this. So how did that come about? What did the court say? A Los Angeles judge held that Silver isn't responsible for the actions of his chef. That's the, the main big ruling here. And the lower court granted Silver summary judgment, finding that he wasn't directly liable because he had no special relationship with Musgrove that would legally obligate Silver to assume control of her safety and welfare. You know, she's an adult, he's her employer, but ultimately he's not supposed to be watching her every second that she's on this trip. The court also said that Harold was not acting within the scope of his employment when he allegedly gave 
Musgrove that wine and cocaine. Okay, so that's what the lower court said. And that got upheld on appeal, right? It did. A three-judge panel for California's second district court of appeal said the Musgroves haven't shown that Silver placed their daughter in peril and then failed to protect her from that peril. Silver himself didn't supply anyone with cocaine, nor did he know anyone was using it, according to the case. Um, And at most, Silver allowed Musgrove to drink the wine that was served with meals and covered the cost of any booze she purchased at the resort. But that's just not enough to establish liability, the panel said. Here's a quote. Although the precedent on vicarious liability is untidy, we hold that the chef's late night activities with the assistant were not within the scope of his employment under each of the four tests articulated by the California courts for assessing the scope of employment for purposes of imposing vicarious liability. Yeah, it's an interesting set of facts. I mean, even though it's, I mean, I don't mean to be too pointy headed about something where somebody died, of course, and I don't want to gloss past that, but the idea of when the employment of a person begins and ends and the employment of a person who is like consorting with the person, you know, like, you know, we're talking about with the the guy with the chef, with the assistant, he's several degrees removed from silver at that point. But yeah, I mean, it's like, it's a very interesting uh, ruling out of California there. Earlier this month, the FBI searched President Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate in Florida, turning up 33 boxes of documents taken from the White House with more than 100 classified records. The action set off a firestorm of reactions, mostly people focusing on the political impact of the search and taking sides with or against the former president. But what if instead of political punditry, you just want to understand exactly what happened with the search and the courtroom fallout? That's what we're going to do today with one of our Florida court reporters, Carolina Bellotto. Welcome back to the show, Carolina. Hi, thanks for having me. I have so much I want to ask you about because this has obviously been a huge story all over the news, but I really want us to do kind of a legal explainer to just set up what happened here and and how to understand it from our legal lens. So maybe we should just start with the FBI search. How did they end up at Mar-a-Lago Largo in the first place? Well, so we know that... Uh, Donald Trump took several boxes of documents from the White House to Mar-a-Lago when he left the White House. And um, throughout most of 2021, the National Archives and Records Administration was going back and forth with him over trying to figure out, like, what was at Mar-a-Lago? What'd you take? Uh, Could you, you know, you need to return documents to us? Because even even then, like, non-classified stuff, it's presidential records, and it's, I think, considered, you know, property of the, the NARA custodian or something. Uh, so in late 2021, uh, Trump said, I have 15 boxes ready for you. And he sent those back. And in there, NARA found 184 classified documents, some of which were top secret documents with like really sensitive information mixed in with things like newspaper clippings, photos, personal notes, etc. And so NARA was concerned at that point, And they made a referral to the DOJ in February. The DOJ got evidence 
from someone <laughs> that there were more documents still at Mar-a-Lago. So they convened a grand jury and uh, which sent out a subpoena for any and all classified documents. In response to that, Trump's team invited the DOJ and the FBI to Mar-a-Lago in June and handed them a folder with 38 classified documents and showed them the storage room where they had more materials, but didn't let the, the government look inside any of the boxes. But the DOJ clearly had reason to believe that there was still more left at Mar-a-Lago. And so they applied for a search warrant and on August 8th took 33 more boxes from the estate. And inside there, they said that there were more than uh, 100 classified documents. Yeah. I mean, it's really been quite the saga even to get to that search. Yes. (laughs) But then when it was searched on Monday, on that Monday, it was obviously so unusual for a former president to have a search happen at, at his residence. So by Friday of that week, the search warrant had been unsealed and we got right. a lot more details about this investigation. Tell me some of the highlights we learned just from that search warrant. Well, the main thing we learned from the search warrant was the three statutes under which the DOJ was investigating um, Trump. So uh, there's the Espionage Act, Obstruction of Justice, and Uh, 17 U.S.C. Section 2071, which bars the concealment, removal, or alteration of government records. And then the other piece of information that we got with the, that was unsealed with the affidavit was the list of of items that were taken, um, which showed a bunch of different boxes and showed that there were some documents marked as top secret. But that's that's all we, we pretty much found out. I mean, that was big. Um, We've found out some more from more court filings since then. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to get into those court filings with you for sure, because I think that's really where a lot of the reporting has maybe not been quite as clear about what's come out of those. But before we turn to it, I mean, you mentioned the Espionage Act, and I think of like spy movies and, you know, selling secrets or something really salacious. But I just want to be clear here, that law being mentioned in that search warrant, that doesn't necessarily mean this is going to turn into some spy movie type issue, right? Right. No, it, it doesn't mean that, but it does mean that it, it's not just mishandling classified information. For the government to prove a violation of the Espionage Act, they have to show that Trump intended to use the information in a way that could harm U.S. national interests. So the way an attorney put it to me, he's like, it doesn't mean that he's selling uh, state secrets, but he might have tried to use it in a way to like embarrass the United States. It, there's there's a million different ways this could go. But the, the government does have to prove intent, which is makes it a little bit harder to prove than, you know, a simple like violation of, of uh, mishandling uh, classified information. Um, the other law, so obviously obstruction of justice, we know that one. Um, then there's section 2071 is an inter- interesting one because that is one where the bar is a little bit lower. It's just apparently removing or concealing a document that can, like a, a classified document, can lead to a, a fine or imprisonment. Also, anyone convicted of that law is disqualified from holding office in the U.S. Yeah, I mean, that's so, obviously that's a, a big, big one. part of this. For yeah. Sure. Well, let's turn to sort of the next big development in this saga, and that was the Florida federal judge on the case ordering a redacted probable cause affidavit to also be unsealed. Tell me what we learned from that document when it was released. Yeah. So the vast majority of that was it was like black bars, you know, (laughs) everywhere. They redacted a lot uh, because they were concerned about uh, keeping their witnesses safe and uh, concerned about witness intimidation and and 
fear that future witnesses would would not want to come forward. But there were a few interesting details, like how the FBI agent who swore the affidavit had really specific information about which rooms were likely to have um, these documents, including Trump's residential suite. That kind of detail suggests that at least one person who's really close to Trump is cooperating with the government. It could be somebody in his inner circle or, I mean, it could even be like a Secret Service agent. Oh, right. Yes. But it has to be somebody that would at least have some knowledge of his personal quarters. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Someone who, who's been there or, or is going there regularly right. and and knows this type of, you know, really intimate information. The affidavit also gave some more information about the types of classified documents that were handed over by Trump in late 2021, which, you know, alerted NARA and made the government concerned about what might still be back at Mar-a-Lago. Um, we learned that in that batch of 15 boxes that he sent, there were 25 top secret documents that were further compartmentalized and included information from things like signals intelligence and from clandestine human sources. And, and the reason that's important is that in a footnote of the affidavit that was unsealed, the DOJ said the Espionage Act criminalizes the unlawful retention of, quote, information relating to the national defense. And it, they said it doesn't have to be classified to apply here in the Espionage Act. So Trump's arguments that he declassified the documents could be irrelevant. Um, and things like signals intelligence, information from spies, that's stuff that most likely relates to the national defense. I mean, probably. Yeah, um, yeah right. So that's that's a pretty big deal. Um, and then the affidavit also hinted at how Trump dragged his feet in returning the documents and, and mentioned concerns about obstruction of justice. More about that actually came out in the response the government filed to his request for a special master, uh, where the DOJ detailed what happened at the June 3rd meeting at Mar-a-Lago. Yeah, I actually am glad you brought up the special master because I definitely wanted to to get to that with you. What is Trump asking for? I mean, this is one of his biggest responses in court was to say, we need a special master to handle this. Why is he asking for that? Can you just kind of give us the background of, of that request? Well, first, I should note that he sat on his hands for 14 days before filing a request for a special master. So um, it basically gave the DOJ time to review all of the seized documents uh, by the time he filed his request, the filter review team, the DOJ had set up a separate filter team, which they generally do for these things, to set aside any potentially uh, any documents that potentially fall under attorney-client privilege. So by the time this was filed, you know, filter team is done. The I think the FBI agents and the, the prosecutors have gone through most of the seized documents. So it's partially moot. But his attorney still argued really forcefully for it on Thursday at the hearing. The interesting thing is the scope of what they're asking for. So typically a special master, from my understanding, is that they're appointed when the, you know, the FBI is raiding, let's say, a law firm, which obviously is a really sensitive location. And so, so you'll have a special master appointed to, to screen for any potential attorney-client privilege um, documents. There are, I have talked to a lot of defense attorneys who say that this should be basically default, that you shouldn't have the DOJ filter team is like not good enough because you have prosecutors still, it's still prosecutors, you know, even if they're not the prosecutors working on that case. But 
what Trump's attorneys want here is like they want the special master to look not just for attorney client privilege materials. They want the special master to screen for executive privilege materials, which is a whole other issue. And to basically like oversee the whole investigation. Um, in the hearing on Thursday, the, the attorneys said that the seizure was unconstitutional and they likened the document situation to like an overdue library book. Um, and they, they said, you know, the process for returning an overdue library book shouldn't lead to a criminal investigation. So what they're asking for is basically a special master to, I guess, exercise prosecutorial discretion. I, I don't know. I don't see how that's going to fly. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask you how that sort of landed with the court so far, if we have any, I mean, a, a little tea leave reading about whether or not this may, in fact, be granted the special master. I Well, OK, so... I, as to a special master overseeing the entire investigation, I mean, that would be unprecedented and unheard of and kind of insane. And a Judge Cannon, she's a former prosecutor. I don't know how that would fly with her, but she definitely seemed inclined to grant a special master. And she also was skeptical of the government's arguments with regard to executive privilege. Um, the government cited Nixon versus GSA. It's a seven, 1977 Supreme Court decision. And, you know, the government said under that case law, the past president can't assert executive privilege when it's the executive branch that's going to be reviewing the documents. It's not like it's another branch of government or, or the public or another, you know, party. It's the executive branch. NARA is part of the executive branch. The DOJ is part of the executive branch. And so they say he has no claim for executive privilege. And Judge Cannon said that the she thinks the government's overreading Nixon versus GSA. So she she seemed inclined. The, the sense I got was that she's going to appoint a special master to review attorney-client privileged uh, materials, to review for executive privilege. But she's also going to carve out and allow the uh, director of national intelligence to continue its uh, ongoing assessment right now of the classified documents that were seized to see what kind of national security risk there is. Um, she seemed to think that, that allowing that, to, that part to continue was important. Okay, so we have this debate about how these documents are going to be reviewed, and we're obviously very early stages in the courtroom proceedings here. But I think the big question on everyone's mind, of course, is, is Trump actually going to be indicted or are people close to him going to be indicted for any of these, you know, potential acts of wrongdoing? So I have a source, uh, an attorney who often represents clients with security clearances and um, who told me that had this been anyone else, he would have already been indicted. That attorney told me the government has been treading very carefully here with Trump. Uh, between giving him months to return documents and really waiting to take action until I guess they felt like there was just nothing, there were no, no other option other than to just show up and take the documents um, to get a search warrant and do that. There's, there's a lot we don't know. Um, and I know that the investigation is still ongoing. But given what we've seen so far and the types of top secret documents at issue, I think there's probably enough to indict him. I imagine the DOJ is going to wait till it has an ironclad case, though. I mean, you, you get one shot at this, right? And uh, and you don't want to miss. Yeah, the stakes really couldn't be higher. Right. So I imagine caution is sort of the, the word of the day. 
Right. So what about people close to Trump? I know that you've done some reporting about his attorneys, for example, and things that they have said in various documents. Like, is there any are there any repercussions expected for any of those people? And what's sort of the universe there? Yeah, God, Trump's attorneys, they all need their own attorneys. I I don't know about Trump's inner like like the Trump's associates and, and whether they might get caught up in um obstruction charges as well, for example. Um, it's a possibility. But I think in terms of, of just his lawyers, uh, they're they're in the hot seat for a lot of reasons. Um, for starters, there's the custodian of his records who signed a certification in June in response to the grand jury subpoena that said all responsive records had been produced. Um, the name of the custodian was redacted. So we don't know for, her sh- for sure who it is, but the New York Times had sources saying it's Christina Bob who is an attorney. People I spoke to said that that's that's really serious when you certify and you present this as fact and it turns out to be false. Um, So she could face bar discipline for something like that. And the other thing is she's almost certainly now a fact witness in the investigation into obstruction of justice by Trump, as is also potentially the attorney who, the other attorney who was at the June meeting in Mar-a-Lago and who made you know, similar assertions to the government, like presented them with a a folder with 38 classified documents and basically said, like, this is it, right? This is all we've got. So so I think the bigger, I mean, whether they face charges, I don't know. But because to a certain extent, they also are relying on their client uh, to tell them something. But they they could have, you know, they could have unwittingly lied to the government, but the I think the the bigger issue is just that they are now fact witnesses, right? right. So they're the government's going to ha- to question them about like, well, who told you that the search was complete and it was done? Because they the government wants to know who's who's helping Trump hide this stuff. Uh, so so they need their own attorneys, and they're now in conflict with their client, and probably at some point, or probably very soon, not going to be able to represent him anymore. Then you've got. Alina Haba, the attorney who's representing Trump in the investigation by the New York Attorney General, she's she's going on Fox talking about the photo of the document scattered on the floor that the DOJ attached with one of its court filings. And she was saying that's not the way his office looks, um, that he frequently has guests there. And and that's a bit of a problem that you, you know, we know from other filings that the DOJ found classified documents in that office. <laughs> and now she's saying that he had frequently had guests there. So Right, which is uh, actually doing the government's job for them in a way to just exactly. confirm Exactly. Right. Yeah. So she also is probably going to need a lawyer and will likely become a fact witness as well. I'm, I'm sure that the government's going to come and ask her some questions about who are these guests who have been in this right. office. Carolina, I mean, there's so many tendrils here, and this is exactly why I wanted you on the show, because obviously all eyes in the nation are going to be on this unfolding courtroom saga. Um, yep. So really appreciate you kind of giving us the the straight news about what's happened to this point, And I'm sure we'll have you back when new developments arise. Thanks so much for having me. like to end our show with something offbeat. And Haley, I think you've got one for us this week. I do. 
And I want to say that I am sad that um, I don't have another poop story for us. But I do have a very entertaining accusation from the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. So back to IP. Amber, this, this is just for you. Great. The agency says that a Chinese company has been using the name of a dead attorney to file thousands of trademark applications <laughs> and registrations. <laughs> okay, Haley, did you know that I, I mean, listeners, we were recording this on the 1st of September, and I've already started asking my husband when I can put out my Halloween decorations because this is my time of year. Like, we're starting to enter spooky season. Oh, no. Now we've got. I don't like where a, you're going with this. Now we've got a ghost <laughs> on our trademark applications. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this yes. also reminds me of uh, if anybody's ever seen um, the movie Major League, the baseball movie Major League. Yep. When they're trying to recruit guys to come to spring training and they're looking at the roster and one guy on the front office says, this guy here is dead. <laughs> also, we'll cross him off the list. Then. <laughs> That's what's going on here. I don't want to get too morbid, but also weekend at Bernie's. Yeah, yeah, sure. yeah. Very, A very lot of visuals here. Yeah. But so what's more is the USPTO said that they brought this up with the company and then after that, the company started just using the name of a fictitious attorney to file its applications. <laughs> they were just like, all right, okay, like we're done using this real dude's name. Let's just so come we, up we with We went from something. Weekend at Bernie's to Catch Me If You Can. Like, yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> yes. yeah, yeah. Good call. <laughs> Great. Well, okay, right. I, I definitely need more details because every bit of this has delighted me so far. So th tell us more about this company and what happened, Haley. Right. So... The USPTO says that Shenzhen Hai Enterprise Management Company listed a deceased attorney as its counsel of record in more than 8,000 trademark applications and registrations. That attorney is named Jeffrey Stewart Firestone, and he died in July 2021. So according to the agency, and I should say this all is spelled out in a show cause order that was issued. Yeah. The agency says that Firestone was falsely identified as the attorney of record for some amount of time while he was alive, but then also after he died, the company filed several hundred applications still naming him. Um, and at one point after his death, the company even included what they said was proof of his standing in the state of Illinois. So here's a quote from that order. Despite news articles reporting Mr. Firestone's death on July 30th or 31st, 2021, more than 300 submissions allegedly signed by Mr. Firestone have been filed with the USPTO since August 2nd, 2021. You know, there's a lot of law firms out there right now that are like, I wish my staff was so productive that they filed <laughs> 300 trademark submissions postmortem. Yeah. I, well, it's funny. Like, I mean, you could understand it even if it were like one or two or maybe even a couple dozen if there's like some auto signature thing or sure. like some sort of misunderstanding. But if you're saying there's like hundreds of filings for like many months after the guy died, it is a little bit curious, I would say. Yeah, it's it's yeah. hard to say that that was an accident. At and then... Point. Well, you're saying, okay, even if, you know, whatever. It's not for us to say if it was an accident or on purpose, whatever. Um, but then what's been uncovered here is that in the face of, oh, you put a dead attorney on your trademark application, 
they are alleged now to have just concocted an attorney out of thin air to sign off on the trademark application or something, right? Yes. Yep. So then the company allegedly was like, all right, uh, okay, let's go with the name Jackson George instead. (laughs) Great. Um, And they used Jackson George on 2,500 applications and registrations, according to the USPTO. Again, very, very productive. This fictitious attorney... More productive than than most. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> and wasn't most that, of the filings, wasn't that Bradley Cooper's name in Star Is Born? Jackson George? No, no. Jackson Maine. Jackson Maine. Yeah. Jackson Maine. Ah, Thank so you. Close. Sorry. So yeah. close. All right. I do get the vibe that they just like mesh together two of the most common. It seemed like a male very American names. name. They were like, yeah. hey, this could be in Illinois. And the agency says that some of those filings indicated that. Jackson George was licensed to practice in Illinois. And then some others said that he practices in New York. They did their homework here. They looked up Jackson George. They said there is only one living attorney authorized to practice law who has a similar name. And that dude is named George Jackson III. <laughs> sure. Jackson they reached out. George. They reached George out Jackson, Jackson to, George. to yeah. Mr. Jackson III. And uh, he said, yeah, I don't practice trademark law. So <laughs> that's Tough. not me. No. Um, so I think that's very funny that the one they found was the name in reverse. I know. I've also <laughs> been reflecting on the, the 300 trademark applications filed by the deceased attorney. Do you think this is a case of just a ghost who has really boring, unfinished business? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Wow. Yes, Amber. I love it. Yes. I mean, I just think it could like, they be. always say that, right? Like you can't pass on until you complete things. Somebody's <laughs> somebody's watched Casper recently, I think. Uh, Maybe if that attorney had been as productive as Jackson George, he would have finished his business, but he only yeah. filed 300. The other guy got up to 2,500. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> okay. Well, Haley, I mean, is there... I mean, I know that like trademark applications are like a pretty sort of, I don't know, boilerplate kind of job for an attorney to do. Do we have any sense of like the circumstances underpinning these these accusations here? We do. I mean, again, these are, you know, all allegations, but let's say the company did do this. It it would sort of make sense because it used to be a lot easier for foreign entities to file trademark applications but it got a little harder in 2019. The USPTO at that time finalized a rule that required foreign trademark applicants to be represented by U.S. attorneys. So, I mean, hey, it's pretty cheap and easy (laughs) to just do it the way they used to. Yeah, and use the name (laughs) of whoever or persuade a ghost to do it, I guess. Correct. That's even cheaper. Although, I don't know if that's, yeah, that's cheap but not easy. I don't know. but. In any event, the USPTO has asked the company to show cause why it shouldn't be banned from submitting any future applications and filings um, or, you know, get hit with other sanctions. I mean, I really hope this proves that ghosts are real. That's what I'm looking for in this start of spooky season story. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> September 1st, as we record, I mean, some people consider that to be the unofficial start of spooky season. I don't know about you guys. I think I'm going to listen to 
some Rob Zombie living dead attorney. Yeah, oh, definitely. That's gonna that's gonna like really kind of like rage in my mind for a little bit. <laughs> uh, but yeah, <laughs> well, uh, I mean, this you know. was a this was a great one, Haley. What a nice way to end today's show. Thanks for being with me, both of you. I also want to thank a bunch of our other people that helped make the show possible, including our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our guests this week, Carolina Bellato, and our contributing reporters, Danny Cass and Lauren Burke. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, please leave us five stars and a written review on your favorite podcast platform so that other people can more easily find our show. And if you want to read more about anything we talked about today, check out our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week.